Good day to be in the house of God, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. Um, Thanks, Jackson, worship team, and you all. Just uh, follow God's leading and just enjoy how you take us into the presence of God and uh, opening up His Word. Uh, Again, welcome to Harvest Hill. My name is Pastor Mike, and um, God's been doing some awesome stuff. If you're visiting with us, if you're, uh, this is where you call home, then you're aware of that. Um, you're also probably aware that we've been going through this series behind me, The Miracles of Jesus According to the Gospel of John or According to John. We've been walking through these miracles. There are eight total miracles uh, in the Gospel of John, the eighth being the resurrection, uh, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend after this series, this is the last message of this particular series, but after this, we're going to spend five weeks just in the last week of Jesus as we journey to the cross and, and get closer and closer to Easter and, and why we celebrate, they, celebrate that. In the Gospel of John, uh, John calls the miracles of Jesus signs. And the reason they're referred to as signs is because they refer to or, or to show the equality of Jesus Christ with God, how he came to reveal God and to make God known, how he came to bring the light into the world. And so these miracles are a demonstration of, of Jesus's nature, his character, his identity, his power, his authority. And as we've been walking through this, these miracles, one thing we have seen is people respond in different ways to Jesus Christ, just as they do today. Some people are in awe of him. Some people are amazed at what he does. Some people just can't get enough of him and want to be around him. And other people want nothing to do with him and want to shut him up. And so we see that in Jesus's earthly ministries. He's physically here and doing these signs and these wonders. Some people are flocking to him and other people just can't get their head around it and are trying to stop it, trying to to make Jesus stop what he's doing, trying to end this following that is beginning to take place. And they're going, to, they're going to believe they're going to do that uh, through the means of the cross, as we'll see here in the next couple of weeks. This morning we turn to uh, John chapter 11. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to make your way there, whether you have a, a physical or digital form. <clears throat> um, we're looking at the final sign or miracle in the Gospel of John, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And you may be familiar with this passage of Scripture. Uh, it's a very simple story, honestly. Uh, you have a man named Lazarus who becomes deathly ill. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus. Jesus obviously has some sort of deep connection with this family. We aren't really given any sort of detail on that. But uh, they send word to Jesus that his friend and the one that he loves, Lazarus, is sick. He's on the verge of death. And that message is most likely to prompt Jesus to come and to heal Lazarus and, and to bring him back into full health. But Jesus doesn't. It isn't until after Jesus, or Lazarus dies that Jesus Jesus makes his way to the town of Bethany and and then reveals and does the sign of raising him from the dead, showing his power and his authority. And it really is a simple story. One of the things that I've always wondered as I've read through John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus is Lazarus' opinion on this whole thing. I mean, can you imagine he's been dead? The Bible tells us that he has died, been dead for four days. He's been in the tomb for four days. We'll talk about that in a second. And then Jesus calls him out. Do you think he was disappointed? Do you think, you know, just thinking, you know, I just left this place and now you're calling me back to this place. I already had a great spot picked out in heaven. And now why am I back here? But Lazarus never says anything in Scripture. 
He never says anything concerning this miracle. He never thanks Jesus. He never says, wow. He never talks about, let me tell you about heaven. You know, all the things I saw there. He simply, at the end of the story, spoiler alert, comes out of the tomb. And, and then the story moves on to what Jesus is ultimately going to do in himself coming out of the tomb. The story of Lazarus really begins in John chapter 10. I know I told you chapter 11, but in John chapter 10, beginning in verse uh, 30 and a little bit before that really set up the story. We're told that Jesus and his disciples have departed Jerusalem and they go back to the place where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You can read that in verses 40 through 42 of John chapter 10. Uh, we don't necessarily know the exact location of this place where Jesus is baptized. We just know that Jesus is somewhere on the Jordan River Probably like with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went there to get away from the crowds. We've, known there's, we've gotten to see there's some hostility growing in Jerusalem with the Jewish leaders, particularly out of some of the statements that Jesus has been making. John chapter 10, verse 30, uh, Jesus makes this statement that I and the Father are one. He, he, he defines that his equality with God. He is of the same nature of God. He is equal with God, in which the Jewish people then want to stone Jesus, but Jesus kind of sneaky little guy and kind of gets out of the crowd and then makes his way out. Well, the crowd follows Jesus to the Jordan River, and that's where the story in chapter 11 picks up as Mary and Martha have their, their brother who is dying, who is sick. And so they send word to Jesus. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany. By the way, this is not the same Lazarus of this, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. That's a, a, a story Lazarus. This is a real Lazarus. Um, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, which was Bethany. Verse 2, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. Verse 2 is kind of a foreshadowing of what to come. That event hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen until chapter 12 of John 10. But it was what John does throughout his gospel is he begins to set up what, an event that is going to take place so his readers are prepared in their heart and their mind for what is about to happen. Lazarus is the same thing. It is setting up this resurrection power which Jesus is fully going to manifest in himself. Um, so verse 3, so the sisters, they sent message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. As I've already stated, Mary and Martha probably sent this message to Jesus because their idea and thought is, okay, if we can get Jesus to come here before Lazarus dies, then he will heal Lazarus and Lazarus will be okay. That, that's probably what they wanted to have happen. But what we find is when Jesus heard it, verse 4, he said, the sickness will not end in death. But it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. I read that, and I, I think the next verse should say, So Jesus got off his little holy rumpus and made his way to Bethany to heal Lazarus. But instead we read, But when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days. So Jesus gets this message, Okay, the one you love, Lazarus, is sick, and the implication is please come as hurry as quickly as you can. And Jesus hears the message and then he stays. He sits back down for two more days at the place of the Jordan River. And then after that, he says to the disciples, all right, it's time to get up. Let's go back to Judea again in verse 7. Verse 8, Rabbi, which again means teacher, the disciples told him, just now the Jews try to stone you and you're going there again. And this lets us know what this following around Jesus, what their thought is about going back into Judea. 
There's danger there, Jesus. There is a friction in the air. They are out for blood. They're not uh, uh, scared of your authority. They're not scared of who you are or who you claim to be. They want you dead. And now you want us to go back there. That just does not make any sense. And so Jesus comes to bring comfort there in verse 9. He says, well, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And we talked about that last week. It's this moments of opportunity for ministry. Jesus is saying that, you know, there's 12 hours in a day. He's, he's not just speaking about, you know, there's 12 hours, how the Jewish calendar is divided up in daylight and nighttime. He's saying there's, there's a time where this, this point of ministry is going to come to a close. There's only so much time that light is going to be in this world. And Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. There's only so much time I'm going to be here. And so why I'm here, you don't need to fear. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I know you're scared. I get that. You've seen them pick up the rocks. You've seen them getting ready to throw them. You've seen that they want to kill me. You know that people outside even the Pharisees and Jewish leaders are going to the Pharisees and they're bringing all these reports just to rile them all up. I get that. I understand. I'm not oblivious to the situation, but here's the reality. We only have so much time here left, guys. And I'm not scared of what they're wanting to do to me. And you shouldn't be either because I am the light of the world and you're with me. Now, how would you like to run with that pack? Jesus just said, I got you. Don't worry about it. So they begin to make their way back. And he said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus, well, he's fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him. That phrase sleep in the New Testament is a phrase that Paul is going to use regularly in his letters. It's to speak of what happens to a believer when we die. It refers to it as sleep. I like sleep. And if I can get a good night's sleep, man, I wake up thanking God for that because I'm, I'm starting to, I don't know, I'm starting to feel the weight of my sin on my body and I ache and, and I have to move around a lot and all that. So when I do a good night's sleep or a good nap, man, amen to good naps, right? Man, I just feel rested. This is the image in which the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, calls death to the believer. Is that death is sleep. It is rest. It is peace. It's this idea that we no longer have to wrestle with this world, and we no longer have to wrestle with sin and the deterioration of our body, that when we die, we go to sleep. It's peaceful. There's no trouble. There's no more turmoil. There's, there's no more anxiety or worry. Well, disciples don't understand that. They don't understand this image that Jesus is trying to talk about. The, the death of a believer is peace. It is what you call in the Old Testament shalom. And it is this, this peace with God, this tranquility, this harmony being restored back to God. The disciples, verse 12 says, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. So what do they think Jesus is talking about? We just He's just sleeping. He's just, Lazarus is finally catching up on Z's. His body's going to restore itself. He's going to wake up. He's going to get better. So Lord, you know, it's already dangerous to go back there. So why don't we just let him rest? We won't bother him. He'll wake up. He'll feel better. All will be well and we'll move on. So Jesus brings the truth. And because it says in verse 13, Jesus wasn't speaking about sleep, sleep. He was speaking about death. And even though they thought he was speaking about natural sleep, so Jesus then told them plainly, look, guys, Lazarus is dead. 
I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so you may believe. So what, this sets up one of the purposes of this miracle. It's for the sake of the disciples to understand that Jesus has the power over death. It's for the sake that they can believe. Now, we we're later going to find it's not just the disciples, but Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the other people who witnessed this miracle also believe that Jesus has the power over death, which is the power of God. Only God is the giver and creator of life. So Jesus is showing, look, I have the same power of God inside of me coming out. But he's also saying, look, in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Now, how does Jesus know that? The only news he's gotten from Bethany is Lazarus is sick. He's really sick. And you need to get here quickly, Jesus. But Jesus now understands that time has passed and now Lazarus is dead. Even without receiving that message, he shows that he has an all-knowing, the omniscience of God upon him. He knows everything about everything going on with people, in particular those he loves. And this is what God does for us. And to me, this, this brings reverence in my mind and brings me peace. Reverence that God knows everything about you and everything about me. Just to be in awe of the fact there's not a thing in your or my life that is hidden from the eyes of God. He doesn't need his angels to send reports. He doesn't need your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa to be praying for you. God already knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the glorious. The Bible says nothing is hidden from his sight. Matter of fact, Psalm 39 says that God knows every minute detail of your life. So when we come into this place, we come into the, the presence of a God who knows all the stuff we bring before him. At the same time, it brings peace because there are times in my life, just like Mary and Martha are going through, just like the disciples are going through, where life just seems crazy. It seems hectic. Things are not going according to my schedule. Things are not going according to the way I want them to go. God isn't doing what I want him to do at this very moment in time. And everything just kind of seems bombarded. I get worried and troubled and aggravated and frustrated. And the beauty of this, despite the way I am reacting to this current life and this situation, nothing in my life and nothing in your life has taken God by surprise. Nothing. Matter of fact, the Bible says as you as his child, his daughter, his son, that God will not allow anything into your life that you cannot handle. Because he's with you in it. In those moments we've seemed overwhelmed and overburdened, the promise of scripture is that when those moments come in our life, that God also provides a way out from under it so we can stand under it. There's nothing that comes against you that God does not allow. We may not like it. We may not agree with it. But we can rest assured that it has not taken God by surprise. And he is right there in the midst. And sometimes those times come so we may develop perseverance and endurance and then strengthen our faith, ultimately strengthen our trust in God. Jesus reveals that, look, I know exactly what's happened to Lazarus. And we're still going there. I'm glad we weren't there because I want you all to believe who I am. I want you all to understand the power that I have. And here's the thing. These men have walked with Jesus for at least three years of, of life, and they are still not going to understand what Jesus wants them to get. 
They're still not going to understand the resurrection power. They're still not going to understand the power of God coming out of him. They're still not going to understand the authority of his word and the authority of his commands. They're still not going to get it. And we're going to see how they don't get it when it comes to the Garden of Gethsemane in the few days after the, the crucifixion. They still don't get it. But here is this beautiful thing. One of the few times, verse 16, that Thomas... Good old doubting Thomas pipes up in Scripture and has something to say. In verse 16 of chapter 11, Thomas called the twin or Didymus. He's, he says to his fellow disciples, he gets his little disciple huddle. All right, guys, let's go to, otherwise, let's go with Jesus so that we can die with either Jesus or Lazarus. The Greek isn't necessarily sure. He's either, Thomas is either saying, let's go back into Bethany. Let's go back into Judea so that the way Lazarus died, we can die. But he may also be saying, let's go back. And even though there's a, a bounty out on Jesus' head, it is more beneficial for us in this moment, rather than stay here and live, that we go back with Jesus and we die with him. For I'd rather die with Jesus than live here in security and safety. And there's such a beauty and there's such a sadness in Thomas's words. It's sad because he doesn't fully understand what's going on. He doesn't fully understand what Jesus is trying to prepare them for. He doesn't fully understand what Jesus is trying to tell them about why they're going back and what he's going to do with Lazarus. But there's a beauty in it in that he would rather be with Jesus than anywhere else in this moment. But, I, man, if you're familiar with this story, I wonder what Jesus was thinking. He never rebukes Thomas at this moment. But he, being God and knowing all things, man, he could have. I can see him turn to Thomas and say, hey, look, Thomas, I appreciate your heart. Appreciate your words and your, your courage. But here's the reality, buddy. When I get arrested here in a couple of months, you're going to run for your life. When they put me on a cross and later in a tomb, you're going to be hiding in fear. And when I finally reveal myself, you're going to doubt every word you hear until you see it yourself. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't even rebuke Thomas or you know, Thomas and say, look, you've been hanging out with Peter too much. <laughs> he just says, all right, guys, let's go. God doesn't require you or me to under, understand everything in his word. Man, that's grace. It's not that it's not beneficial that we continue to grow and learn about the things in God's word, but that's not the requirement of salvation. That's not the requirement of following Jesus or being a disciple or being a Christian. is isn't that I can understand everything in here and I've got a full grasp on it. All God requires for me to do is to follow and to trust Him. Despite what the disciples couldn't understand about their safety back in Judea, they trusted Jesus, that Jesus had them, that they were safe with Him. And so they go back. When Jesus arrives back, beginning in verse 17, He comes back and Martha hears. And so Martha runs out to meet Him and we know there's other Jews there, and some people believe there's other Jews out of Jerusalem. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's going to be in Bethany, where, by the way, where Jesus is going to set up camp until the final night of the Passion Week, where he's going to have the upper room rented. And 
this family hears of Jesus coming. Martha is probably the oldest sister, runs out to meet Jesus. And I kind of want to hang on this conversation between Martha and Jesus uh, for the time we have left. Picking up in verse 20, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Mary likes to sit, by the way. She sat at the feet of Jesus, and Martha likes to move. So, um, ha ha. Uh, 21. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you, have, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We have this interesting conversation with Martha and Jesus. One thing she's saying, okay, I understand the power that you have. I understand the authority you have. I understand what you can do is unlike anybody else. I understand who you are. And I, she seems to imply, yet I even understand that you can still do something because God listens to you. You're a righteous man and God only listens to the righteous. So there's still something that you can do. I don't know what it is. And what Martha is doing in this moment is she is battling with this, under, this belief that she has in Jesus Christ with the logic she has of living in this world. Jesus, I believe you can do anything, but I don't know what it's going to be. Martha would have been familiar with the resurrections that Jesus had. He had already brought people back to life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell of Jesus raising Jairus' son. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus raised a widow's, uh, widow's son. But both of those miracles occurred almost immediately after the, the individual had died. We're told here in John that Lazarus, he's been in the tomb for four days. Jew- Jewish funerals weren't like ours. They didn't have visitations and, and funerals like, you know, within a couple days or a week sometimes. When someone died, it was immediately you started getting things together and people would start mourning and you do the whole funeral thing. So Lazarus being in the tomb for four days means that he's been dead for four days. And even though Martha says, you know, I know you can do anything, her belief did not carry conviction. Because if you read on in the story, when Jesus finally goes to Lazarus' tomb and says, remove the stone, it's Mary who pipes up there in verse 39. And Lord, there's already stench because he has been dead for four days. So even though she had a belief, God, you can do anything, she's still wrestling with this unbelief that I don't exactly know what that means in my life. And that's the beauty of our salvation. Because we understand who God is and we have this belief that God can do anything, but we still wrestle with our unbelief. I don't know what that means. And I don't even know if it's really possible. So Jesus tells her, tries to give her comfort, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will in the resurrection's last day. See, this is where she is. She's like, okay, this is final. And the Jewish people, death, that was it. It was done. It was a done deal. Now, they were familiar with other resurrections. Man, there's some really strange ones in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah resurrects a widow's son. In 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha resurrects a Shunammite's son. And then there's this really strange story. You can Google it later if you want in 2 Kings, where a man is thrown into Elisha's tomb and he touches Elisha's bones and he comes back to life. 
So Jewish people are familiar with this idea of resurrection, but the Jewish belief of a resurrection was divided. The Pharisees believed in resurrections and angelic beings, and the Sadducees didn't believe in such thing. And so in the book of Acts, Paul, when he's confronted by both parties, he brings up the debate of resurrection, which then turns them on each other rather than on Paul. But the Jewish people believed, okay, there either is or isn't a resurrection. Martha obviously believed at some point in time, God is going to raise his people from the dead. And so her belief is that, okay, Lazarus is dead. He's been there for four days. What, what has happened cannot be changed. But I understand that he will resurrect on the last day when God finally reveals his glory. To Jewish people, that was going to be the restoration and the renewal of Israel. That's how they viewed the resurrection. It was going to be the restoration and the renewal of Israel. And so when Jesus says in verse 25 to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. What he is telling Martha is that her belief of the resurrection is not what is not accurate. He is saying, I am the restoration of God's people. I am the renewal of God's people. I am what you're looking for, Martha. I have that power within me. I, am, I can give you what the people of God are desiring. And then he also says that I am the life. He's saying I have the power to give and take life. Just as God created life, so I create life. I can give it. It is mine to give. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Man, what a comfort right there. What that says is that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you no longer have to fear death. When you die, you truly live. You've probably heard this last week that Billy Graham passed away, and I came across this as I was prepping, and you may have read it on the beautiful world of Facebook that says everything is accurate. But Billy Graham said this, someday you're going to read that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now, and I will just change my address because I will have gone into the presence of God. That's the promise of Scripture if you're a child of God. You don't have to have revelation figured out. You don't have to have this new body we're going to be given figured out. You don't have to have figured out how our relationship with other people and family members in heaven is going to be. Those are all great questions, and we could spend hours debating those things. All I have to know is the words of Jesus Christ is when I die physically, I will live like I've never lived before. I'll no longer have any worry or pain sorrow or sickness. I never have to worry about death again. I never have to worry about aches and pains and trying to get comfortable in bed or in my chair. I'm going to be perfect. So when I die, I shed off this body and the promise of Scripture is I'm given a new body that will never fade, never spoil. So Jesus says, everyone who lives, verse 26, and believes in me will never die. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, the promise of Scripture is you are already an eternal being. You may physically leave this earth, and people may physically mourn your passing, but the reality is there is no more, there's no beautiful, more beautiful of a thing 
when a brother and sister in Christ leaves this world and enters into eternity. But then we also have to deal with the flip side. If you are here this morning and you are not found in Jesus Christ, then the reality is when this life is over, that's it. There is no redo. There is no reset. Death is final. Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 3 when He's speaking with Nicodemus, verse 18, anyone who believes in Him speaking of Jesus as the Son of God is not condemned. And if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe He died for my sins, I believe He rose again, I believe by this confession of faith I'm now a child of God, been given the Spirit, begin be made a new creation. Again, I don't have to fully understand all those concepts. I just have to, okay, I, you sign me up. I'm not condemned, but anyone who does not believe, anyone who has not confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as their Lord and Savior, is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son. One and only Son. Meaning, if you are here this morning, you may think you just showed up to church, but the reality is there is a God who loves you who is calling you out to step out of the grave as Jesus is going to call Lazarus out of that grave and to step into the resurrection of life that is only found in Jesus Christ. Without that, you are dead. You are literally the walking dead right now. But if you have Jesus Christ, you're already an eternal being. You're already living eternally. So eternal life doesn't happen when I die. I'm, I'm experiencing it right now. Jesus asked Martha, 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 in verse 26, do you believe this? Do you believe I'm the resurrection? Do you believe I'm the life? Do you believe that if you believe in me and when you die, you won't actually die, but you will live? Do you believe it, Martha? And Martha says, yes, Lord, hallelujah, right? I believe you are the Messiah. I mean, I believe you're the one the prophecy spoke of. I believe you're the one that God has sent to save us. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are of equal nature of God. You are of equal power and authority of God. You are the same character of God. You have come into this world. I believe this. But if you read on, Martha may believe it, but she doesn't fully understand it. Because when Jesus shows up at the tomb, verse, let's jump to verse 38. Verse 38, he was deeply moved again. And I believe we jumped over the shortest verse of the Bible, by the way, 1135. You want to memorize scripture? Jesus wept. Okay? Verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again. And I believe Jesus wasn't just deeply moved because of the passing, because Jesus would have believed his own words. He would have believed that Lazarus believed in him as the son of God. He would have believed that even though Lazarus dead, he was going to live on. He would have believed that. So what is he deeply moved at this funeral arrangement or this tomb? He was deeply moved and he wept because the reality of sin was right before him. Sin leads to death. That is it. And Jesus coming to this place, understanding, okay, this is why people die, is because of the sin that is in this world and the sin is in people. This is the representation of sin. This is why every individual in this room, every individual you work with, every individual you call a family or a friend, they are going to die because they have sin in them. And if that sin is not dealt with, we will be eternally separated from God. 
And Jesus was deeply moved again, and he came to this tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it, and he said, remove the stone. And Martha, who just made his confession of faith, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You've come into this world. Martha now pipes up because she's struggling with believing what she confessed. Lord, it's going to stink something nasty. He's been in there four days. Are you sure? So Jesus has to take her back to her confession. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Sometimes that's where God's got to take us. We have those moments of unbelief, those moments where we wander away from trusting God, those moments of getting off the, the narrow path. And God comes to us in a very loving way as a father and disciplines us and says, hey, don't you remember what you said you believed? Is this matching what you said you believed? And it's a very loving rebuke that Jesus gives to her. And they remove the stone Jesus says this prayer, and then he calls Lazarus out, and here's the beauty of it, that we can know that Lazarus was a follower of Jesus Christ because Lazarus obeyed the word of Christ and knew the voice of Christ. Jesus says, my sheep know me, and they know my voice. And as Jesus calls Lazarus out, Lazarus comes out, and I want to finish on this last thing that Jesus says here. In verse 44, the dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unwrap him and let him go. Here in a couple months, Jesus is going to be crucified. They're going to place him in a tomb very similar to Lazarus, except it's going to be under guard and they're going to seal it. There's a difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus left his death clothes in the tomb. When Lazarus came out, he was still covered in his wrappings, the, the sign of his death. And Jesus gives the command to unwrap him from the chains that are binding him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. The question I have this morning is, where are you today? Are you like Lazarus who has come back from the dead? You believed in the name of Jesus Christ. You believed in the work of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the finishing work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection. But are you still wrapping yourself up in your sin? Are you still covered in that? Are you still allowing yourself to be entangled? The command of Jesus was take it off. The reality of Scripture is our sin in our life keeps us from being and going where God needs us to be and where He wants us to go. And we can argue and we can debate. It's not a big deal. Everyone's doing it. I don't know why. I like it. The reality is it's keeping you from where God wants you to be and who God needs you to be. Is there a sin in your life you need to unwrap? You need to take off so that you can live the life that God is promising 
all of his people. You may be here this morning, and the reality is, is that you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the reality is that if today was your last day on earth, that would be it. We would come to your funeral, and we would mourn, and we would cry, because we would know the reality. I've done numerous funerals in my life, and there's not a harder funeral to do when you know an individual has not been saved. Because that's it. There's no second chance. There's no do-over. And God has brought you here to this place in this moment, right in here, right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when you get your life straightened out, not when you have more of this stuff figured out, not when you understand more of the Bible. God has brought you here, right here, right now, to invite you into a relationship with Him so that when this life is over, and it's all going to be over at some point in time for all of us. That's just reality, people. But when this life is over, it won't be the end. You may leave this life, but you will enter into a glorious eternal life because you're a child of God. That promise is for all of us. But if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, then you're standing on the wrong side. And we come to this point of invitation to change that. The Bible says, at first, I have to admit that I'm a sinner. I do things I shouldn't do, some things I don't want other people to know about, I'm not proud about. That's sin. It keeps me from being who God created me to be. The Bible says that I don't have to fix my sin, but I have to trust that God fixed my sin. And I have to believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. He took my punishment. They placed him in a tomb just like Lazarus, but by his own power, Jesus came out of that tomb that I could be forgiven completely, past, present, and future. The Bible says when I believe that I have to confess it with my mouth, that I believe Jesus died for me, He rose again, and I am inviting Him into my life to be my Lord and Savior. It does not say, I have to have it all figured out. I just have to say, I believe that God loves me that much and is for me that much. If you're here this morning, you've yet to make that confession of faith. Confession means to make it public then now is the time to accept God's invitation of love for you. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us. If you're here and you've already accepted that, but you know there's been a sin in your life, you just need to remove. And God is commanding you in this moment to unwrap that sin because it's entangling you. Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. Just symbolic of laying things down at His feet. Asking Him for strength to help you to move on the next day. And, and to leave that sin in the past. I don't know where you are, but I know God is good all the time. And He brings us this moment to respond because He loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for Your Word that trains, corrects, rebukes, and prepares us for godliness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for everything You've set aside for us to do. It's become this moment of response Lord, I pray for the individuals here in this room who are not your children, but have come fully aware of that in this moment because your spirit has spoken to their heart. You're pressing upon them. Lord, that they would, when we stand up in a moment, they would walk down this aisle and just come and let it be known they want Jesus, they want to be saved. Father, there may be individuals here who have yet to follow you in baptism, and that's something that they're living in sin and disobedience to your word. That's something they need to do. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness and your mercy and your love. It endures forever. But Lord, knowing that you don't give us grace so that we can continue to live like the devil, you give us grace so we can have strength to live like your child. 
So let us come and lay aside everything that is hindering us from being the people you need us to be and the church you need us to be, that we may become fully alive in you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're doing right here in this moment in the hearts of your people and those who are your calling to be your people. You gave us, we failed you in any way, in any time in this place. Thank you once again for allowing us to be in your presence. Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand. Now's the time to respond.